Hello everyone and welcome to the Underformed Handball Hour. It's Chris O'Reilly here, joined by Alex Kulesh with a few pints in him after the bars in Copenhagen have opened. Alex, how are you? I'm feeling great, Chris. You know what? The bars are... They're a great place. They're, they're a good place to be. Brian Campion is in his own good place as he's walking around with a tight pair of green underwear and nothing else. Brian, how are you? Not too bad. Yeah, there is a good excuse for that, though. I'm uh, trying to run 100 kilometers this month and uh, I just came back from a run. And, you know, when you're a bit hot and steamy after a run, I didn't feel like putting um, some pants on for the podcast. So, pantsless podcast today from my side <laughs> i think that's going to set the tone for the day as uh, we're <laughs> dipping into the mailbag as we've asked for your questions and topic suggestions for this podcast and we got plenty of them we'll be flying through them as the episode wears on but we're going to go through some of the biggest news of the last few days first and oddly enough we're going to talk about football Kind of, because the biggest news in all of sport from the last few days was the sudden appearance of the dirty dozen clubs that decided to run the Super League. And then over the following 48 hours, them basically uh, going back with their tail tucked in between their legs. Some of them apologizing to the world after basically everyone in the sporting world rose up against them and was united. Alex. You're a Barcelona fan. Are you still a Barcelona fan? I'm still a Barcelona fan. Um, I do love that it was Real Madrid and Florentino Perez that was the face of this. Um, But it did bring me back completely to this um, handball Premier League idea that came about in 2016. And I actually, I I looked into the, the founders of that and basically the articles and interviews that came out of that. And it was it was striking how similar the message was, how basically the whole situation was exactly the same and the absolute backlash that it got from both sides. So handball experienced this five years ago. We've been through it. So football is just uh, getting there now. Well, the the funny thing was, it wasn't any, it wasn't clubs though, was it that that decided to to come together and and form form the breakaway Premier Handball League? It was uh, Wolfgang Gutschow and former EHF marketing marketing director um, or managing director. Peter Vargo, who after over 20 years at DHF decided he, he was going to leave and take over this thing, which basically lasted about 14 minutes uh, and everyone kind of laughed out of town. I think my memory of that Premier League um, situation, it didn't seem like obviously nowhere near the amount of outrage that um, the, we're seeing now in football. I think that probably is because of the clubs not, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah, didn't, as Chris said, it didn't come from a club's perspective. Um but there are people in the world who do think we should have some sort of franchise system to handball. And maybe that's maybe the next thing we should explore. Is handball missing something in terms of having a franchise? Like, for example, like you have in the NBA. I think the concept that was brought forward from the, the Premier Handball League 
had a fatal flaw, and that was basically calling handball as it is today completely shit. It just <laughs> completely like it diminished what handball is today continually. Um, and it, it was all about uh, the, the quote from Wolfgang was PHL intends to bring handball from villages to arenas in metropolitan areas and bring handball to the next level. And that concept of handball being a village sport was continually brought forward by the founders of this uh, Premier Handball League uh, back in the day. And it's, it's truly insulting to what handball is today because th that concept of a village sport is also what makes handball really um, enticing and engaging because you do have these big teams coming out of small towns, but the followings they have, you know, it, it's engaging. It brings the players down kind of from a stratospheric level to, um, you know, your your day-to-day -day fan. And I, I think that's the beauty of handball in a way. But there is also another part of it where they basically had... It, the, the reason why I bring parallels to the Super League concept that was brought up by football is because the idea wasn't thought through on either side. And one of the quotes, again, was, everything is possible, nothing is mandatory. Handball Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> Basically saying, we'll figure it out. Um, we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, we'll figure it out. And the Handball Premier League concept was a completely radical change uh, it all talked about basically bringing up this franchise concept of making new clubs in metropolitan areas and changing the core of the structure of clubs uh, that is different to the super league in football where it is the the, the club-led um idea but in both cases neither organization had it figured out they they're just like okay we can do something here and it's it's gonna be great but you know just come along with us and then we'll figure out on the way <laughs> yeah, okay. works. yeah come on keel give up everything you know and all the money you have and maybe you'll get more money or maybe we'll turn you into a new name because uh, we don't want you to be in small cities like Kiel. Uh, we need you to be in Hamburg. The inf interview you're quoting is with Handball World from five years ago. And he was like, the Hamburg captains. Instead of Cadet and Schaffhausen, they could be the Swiss cadets. And, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, and yeah, they're absolutely, and also referees like, the IHF and EHF uh, aren't going to uh, say this, aren't going to say this is okay. In fact, Michael Wiederer, the EHF president now told Strikes Biller at the time, the PHL is not an important topic with the EHF. So <laughs> they weren't going to talk with each other. They were like, so how are you going to get referees? And Wolfgang, uh, his response was, finding 40 referees is one of the least of our problems. Yes, that was the least of your problems. Um, someone who did think about it way more than Wolfgang Gutschow and Peter Vargo was five years previous to that. And John Ryan, who... Re, uh, resurfaced his three-part epic on what a European Super League would look like. And I think, Brian, this is uh, going to be your thesis topic of the day. 
Is it? Oh my God, pressure's <laughs> on here now. But uh, kind of just coming back to what, what Alex said there about, I think one of the main things that people, handball fans love about handball is they love their club and they love the history of their club. And if you're going to get handball fans to give up their the name of their club or even I mean even see when a club changes their logo or people lose their minds but if you're gonna, if you're going to ask fanball fans to give up their club history for in the name of franchise I think it's a very very hard sell like if you can't you can't attack the core base of the whole sport like that like Alex said because then you're going to lose and then another thing which John Ryan had in an article from 2011 was about the kind of idea of the franchise system taking over and he divided up Europe into was it uh, four different or five uh, six different places what was it north four uh, four regions yeah. yeah four divisions four regions yeah it would basically be the elite of elite players playing in this in this system and then he would he proposed that then the national teams competitions would be moved to the summer and then that that most of the top players wouldn't be that interested in playing them in anyway so that's that's a hard sell for everybody because then you're talking about you're going to be smaller clubs have no chance. You think a club like, I don't know, a club like Skjern from a few seasons ago had that run in the Champions League, like things like that wouldn't be, wouldn't be as possible. Then national team is going to, are going to suffer. National team handball is so important for it's like the core of a lot of handball fans like uh, diet, you know, so they're, they're two very, very, very hard sells for people. And I think when you throw those cards on the table, I think not many people are going to listen to you. But I think um, despite all, all we've talked about um, with how the idea came about and um, the com- concepts are quite radical and the importance of history within European sport, I think it is really a European culture to be ingrained in the history of clubs, to be fully bought in generation after generation into a club and believe that it means more than just making money i think football has gone way beyond that already they they believe that they're still within this um concept of you know mescue and club you know more than a club or you'll never walk alone but they're just marketing taglines at the end of the day i think handball is still within that realm of historic generational kind of beauty to it Taking all of that in, handball isn't massively marketable with the way it is today. And some of the concepts that are presented in this Premier Handball League do make sense to expand the sport. And it really, it it's, it's a difficult pill to swallow to say that, you know, if we continue with the way we are, it's it's beautiful for everyone who's in it today, but how much expansion out of that do we have? And I think that's the challenge for handball. And, you know, that that's what all of these concepts are trying to think about of how do we expand? And right now, handball hasn't figured out how to expand. Handball is a purely European sport. There are some exceptions, but it's Europe at its core. And it is the small community feeling to it. And if we want handball to expand as a global sport, which it has huge potential to, we do need to think in a different way. I wonder if 
This is just kind of spitballing here based on also what Brian was saying about national teams and the kind of misconception saying how unimportant national teams are. They are incredibly important and the the international competitions arguably attract way more people because, you know, your average sports fan is more likely to watch their national team play in the European Championship than to watch the club team that's near them play in the final four. I think uh, that is, that is a fact. I mean, as much as we like, we like to big up the Champions League and uh, people do, the national team competitions are bigger. Now, I wonder in a way that we've seen with rugby as it's traditionally been and also with uh, field hockey as they're trying to do now with their uh, World Hockey League that the national teams are almost like the the club teams that are pushed out there and the national team calendar becomes the... The, the product that is pushed out to the whole world. So in the World Hockey League, for example, you have uh, you have national teams playing in a Champions League style competition, but as a national team. In rugby, you have the Six Nations, uh, you have the World Championship, the, the Championship for the Southern Hemisphere teams, and they also want to have a World Rugby League as well, which is going to be national teams. So maybe that is another way and, and and in that case you can bring national teams from north africa uh, from south america into it as well as marketable products but that would be a real shake-up of everything we know about handball today that's it's actually a really good uh it's a good view on things because i i fully agree that um the national teams are a a bigger part of the broad culture we just know how much interest there is within these uh, national team tournaments and already in handball i think we have a fairly saturated national team calendar where we have a major competition every year um and actually twice a year on the if you include the men's and the women's side you know talking about the fan base who are interested in it and it might, uh, you know, the, the idea to expand the sport might be to just really shape that national team calendar in a way that suits better. Of course, there's incredible uh, political divergence from IHF and EHF that I don't think will ever be bridged. And that's why I think this concept of a, a Super League or whatever we talk about is more enticing to make that change because... You can basically just get away from all the governance shackles of the IHF and EHF and try to do something different. But I do like the idea. I think potentially, even though the the Nations League in football initially got a very poor reaction, it's like, why are we, you know, get rid of these friendlies and it's this fake tournament that's built up. That might be a concept that Handball can explore in terms of, the qualifiers in handball are really, they're becoming less and less important. You know the majority of the teams that are going to qualify. You know that um, the tournaments are expanding so that all the best teams are going to be in there anyway. And there's just this mid-ground which has a bit of competition. So to maybe reshape the qualification tournaments on, on the national stage to yeah yeah grow that product might be a, a good approach to it. Well, here's a question for both of you now. What what can you get in terms of growth, growing handball as a sport from having it as a franchise system or some sort of Super League system that you don't get from just having a smaller Champions League 
pool of, of teams where you do have teams getting relegated uh, each season. Because with the franchise system, you know, we don't have that relegation thing. And a lot of people don't like that aspect. And that was a big thing with the Super League that people were saying, you, you're you going to be in it no matter what. It doesn't really make a difference. And I think that's a, a really hard sell for most European sports fans. At the end of the day, with, with John Ryan's three-part series uh, with the Premier Handball League, they were both focused just on getting it getting in into bigger cities. That's that's all that's all it is at the end of the day, uh, and making a closed uh, a closed competition. Yes, it would be great to have handball be bigger in in a lot of uh, bigger cities. I think we often overegg the pudding there. I, I think we often say that like it's only played in small places or in villages. That's not the case necessarily. You know, if if a city is big enough to have a homecoming parade for their team with five hundred thousand people after winning the Champions League, like Vardar, I think it's big enough. But I, I think honestly, the whole franchise thing is purely about getting teams into bigger cities. Um, I, I can't figure out any other way, um, and that's why I think a national team focus kind of figures that out because then you're encompassing the whole nation. And also to to compare national teams with uh, rugby, for example, is unfair because. You know, in rugby, you have national teams playing while the club teams are playing. So could you imagine Germany play France while Kiel and PSG are playing in the Champions League or playing in the in their domestic leagues? Not a chance in hell. Yeah, I, I really don't see how franchises would really do anything besides put teams with different names into new cities. I, I would say that handball, where it is today, is basically getting almost to a franchise level. Uh, kind of naturally with the way that the leagues have developed and if we're being honest the Bundesliga is the only league where there is top-down competition and even when looking at the Bundesliga we've you know it's Flensburg Kiel over the last how many years that have been dominating there with a pinch of Ryan Nickelodeon you know France we can talk about it as a competitive league, but you know we, we've seen that PSG are basically starting to run away with it. And basically the way it has developed is that there are countries with one or two top clubs that completely dominate. If you look at Hungary, Macedonia, Denmark, potentially in the future with Albor, which we um, will get to in the future, Poland, Spain, there is that dominance of a top club and there really is no competition for the places. And the way the Champions League has been designed now is that those top clubs, um, because it's one position for the top nine countries in Europe, so that the top club gets reinforced with extra finances continues to dominate into the Champions League and there is this wildcard rule which is reminiscent of a Super League uh, that was introduced. Not a, not a wildcard. The, the, the word wildcard is banned at the EHF. <laughs> <laughs> but how, how are... So there are nine teams that are defined by champions of the top nine leagues in Europe. And then there are um, seven extra teams. Well, one is the Europa, um, the European League champion, so that's ten. 
that's I think that's a good move. That's a good move of giving an extra spot to Germany, which <laughs> <laughs> which we have seen in historically as a dominator of the secondary um, European competition. And then there's six teams. So what is the, if it's not a wild card, what is the defining um, qualification of those six teams? Every team that wants to be in the Champions League sends a an application to be a part of it. And then a decision is made based on a number of criteria. And an additional place is granted, not a wild card. But and I, but um, it's a, it, it brings me on very nicely to the the next little kind of section of this, and uh, I just want to give a shout out to uh, some of the people who've who've asked us about this as well. We had Eugene Lavery who asked us to discuss a hypothetical handball super league. Uh, we also had JD Orr asking whether handball super league work in America. But then on Twitter, we've seen Rasmus Boysen and Kevin Doma basically say, "Well, the HF Champions League is a super league at the moment. It is a closed league." And then Christopher Ekmark, who publishes a Swedish handball magazine called Sturmerfowl, said, Handball already has a Super League, but under the auspices of the EHF. Back when we had this Super League thing, or the Premier Handball League in 2016, the protests have been lukewarm, a proof of how little influence clubs and supporters have on the sport. First of all, I think that's not true because it's the clubs who are pressuring into this current EHF Champions League system. It's Barca and Vardar who want to play the same big teams every week and on the other side of that you have the German and French teams that don't want to play as many matches so my question to you two guys is is the EHF Champions League practically a closed Super League at the moment Alex I think you kind of gave your answer already what is your view there Brian I think like what I was talking about earlier about the relegation thing I mean from that aspect it kind of is like a franchise system because the EHF basically, like you said, are in a lot of cases sometimes decide players like or teams like Besiktas or if next season, for example, if Zagreb will have a spot or not, you know. So th- there is no kind of relegation from the Champions League in that regard. So it does have franchise aspects to it. So I, I yeah, I'd say it probably does. It has elements to it, but the the thing which is missing for maybe is the, is the regional aspect of it having north south east east west or whatever you might have with franchises which we don't have i think that is that is one benefit maybe of having a of having a franchise where you do limit the travel uh with teams it makes it sometimes it makes it a little bit easier but i'd say probably elements of a franchise maybe maybe not fully not fully there all right but i mean when you talk about relegation there i mean if a team doesn't finish in the top two in germany or if in the top two in France or win the league, which does happen or in another country, like for example, Zagreb may not win the league. If they win it this year, they may not win it next year against uh, Nashica. The top two in Germany can change and it has changed over the last couple of years. And second place in France does change. Same can happen in Denmark. I mean, isn't that relegation? I mean, if you, if you win your league every year, you deserve to be there. Uh, if you're in a top 10 league. Yeah, for those for those very top leagues, but I'm talking so like I'm talking about the last few spots at the bottom, you know, where you would be normally yeah. relegated, like teams like teams like Besiktas or whoever else. I mean, if Zagreb do win the league, I mean, is it absolutely guaranteed they're going to get a spot in the Champions League next season? If they're in the top nine leagues, then yes. Uh, if they're not, then no. I don't know where. I think Croatia might be ninth or tenth. I think they're very they're very much on the edge of getting kicked out now as an automatic qualifier. I think from my perspective is that we're actually at the very start of this new Champions League format. And 
the way it has been built is to basically amplify and strengthen the top team in each league. And the the goal is that the financial benefits from the Champions League also increase uh, the the more you participate in it and the longer you're in it. And that will just basically bring a, a bigger gap in the national leagues where you can say that, um, of course, PSG can uh, not qualify for the Champions League. But, that well, PSG have financial strength behind them to make sure that they're always there. And then they also get the benefit of the extra financial bonus from the Champions League to keep them there. So the case of um, a team displacing that top team becomes weaker and weaker the longer we go in this format. And, you know, there, there is no possible case where Veshprem and Zeget won't qualify for the Champions League in the coming years unless there is a millionaire, billionaire that comes into Hungary and decides to fund a club. Um, because not only they have a good start, but they're also continuing... Uh, and benefiting from this elite system that has been built from the Champions League to stay at that top level. So I think right now we're at the start of it, but I think in a few years we will have an absolute chasm. Yeah, but, the, but what do you want to do then? Because, I mean, a couple of years ago, the the discussion was that teams in the Champions League aren't getting enough money or barely getting money at all. And now that they're getting the money, it's not fair because they're the best teams and I, and I mean the I mean you could have a 32 team Champions League which by the way I would love to have or at least some kind of qualification system so that technically yes any team in Europe can get through but I don't think I don't know if there's enough money to give to all these teams equally like all 32 teams or if you don't qualify for the Champions League that you also get money and and also we talked about marketing before and they're also trying to mar- make this a marketable product with the best teams in Europe together so I think a lot of people often like make, I'm not talking about here, but in general, you hear people say, like a couple of years, they were saying clubs aren't getting enough money. It's not a marketable product. And now that it's been turned into a competition where there's more money for these top teams and is potentially, we haven't seen the actual like the fruits of this labor because the Champions League in this new form has been under COVID practically the whole time. But then you have uh that uh, that it's 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 not fun because you see Vesprem and Barca playing each other potentially three times a season. But I actually think that um, it's not about uh, uh, my point wasn't about the unfairness of it. I think it's more about that we are getting to a stage of where it is a super league type format where we do see the same top teams and they play all the time and you know it's becoming a super league why so then this argument we had at the start of like oh this is a ridiculous idea to kind of take all the top teams and have this uh close off league that i think we're getting there with handball and um why not actually just enable that well, because in the same way that everyone got angry about it in the football sense, at the end of the day, you want to know that you have an opportunity to set up a team in County Sligo, Ireland, when Brian becomes a millionaire. He sets up a team in his hometown. 
Uh, within a couple of years, they win the Irish League and that they technically somehow could go into the Champions League in a fair way, qualifying for the Champions League and play. But only, only if they uh, meet the financial and uh, stadium regulations that the EHF has designed yeah. to give a um, True, yeah. a rewarded but place. It's mostly, so. yeah, because that's because they want it to be a marketable product. They don't want Brian to have the games played in his backyard. So, so hypothetically, I go to Ireland and I've, I've, I've found a, a club there with my 10 billion euro and I build a mm. stadium the right size. I have all the money. I build a team around it. But I'm playing in the Irish League against Astra and and Lunasa, do you know? And they're the same level. I still think I wouldn't get into the Champions League, even if I had Mikkel Hansen and Sanders Sagsen in my team. Why not? Or would Why? I? Because because the league wouldn't be in, in the top ten, no? Or would well, it be? I'd be, I'd be playing I mean, on the fact I'd be trusted with a wildcard well, system. The, then, adi- no? the additional place the, system. The additional yeah, so any team that um, that would be playing in the H or the European League, which. Brian Campion, Pfizer, Sligo Handball Club will be uh, will be playing in because <laughs> Ireland gets a place in the European League if they wanted. That there is possibility for an upgrade. But we're talking about like this uh, situation, which is very common in handball, which is a club just coming out of nowhere, getting more money, and going to the top to compete at the top. And I think um, it's a bit of an issue that's kind of being seen in football. Um, but I think it, it is very difficult here in handball. And we talked about this in our economics uh, podcast as well, where there is kind of a race to the top where there's currently, let's say, eight teams that they're guaranteed a win in their league. So to make their season a success, they have to win the Champions League. There's only going to be one Champions League winner every year. So there's only one team that succeeds seven that fail and it builds this kind of bubble where eventually you know if you fail enough times in this sense of like if champions league win is the only metric that you're measured on you fail enough times and then there's a loss of sponsorship there's a loss of support there's a loss of a you know rich man who's invested in a club and it's not sustainable and you want to I think the concept of the Super League is to build something sustainable from the bottom up as opposed to the top down. So what's your, if then quickly, because I th- I feel like we could talk about this for another two hours. <laughs> and we have talked about it for a long time. <laughs> if it was up to you, if you could, if you could draw up the top level of European or world club handball right now, what would the format be in, in simple English and in numbers of teams? I would say similar to the Champions League we have today with a qualification round that's open to, let, let's say there should be a possibility of there being four German teams in the Champions League because th- they are better than Tchaikovsky Medvedi, which we saw in the quarterfinal of the European League (laughs) but but not too much better Um, but I think the more the more we've talked about this the more I think that this kind of Super League model might actually be the solution eventually maybe not today and um, I think the issue has been about like let's 
destroy the history of handball completely and build something new. But if we can basically have a super league that's built out of the Champions League, that becomes a more marked up product. Um, that that's with no today. with no qualification. Um, <laughs> yeah. you got you got him there but come on even if these top executives at the top football clubs in the world couldn't figure out how we go from uh 12 core teams and then we'll have you know five additional places <laughs> I, I can't figure it out on this uh, podcast right now. So give, give me all a right, bit of right. leeway. We'll be back to you next time. Brian. I mean, I, the first thing Alex said, I, I completely agree. I'd have it almost the way it is now, but just have an extended mm. qualification where you, you could have the chance for, you're going to have better teams. And because some of the smaller nations might suffer a little bit, but I don't think anyone would miss teams like Besiktas in the Champions League, for example, when they're not really ready for it. They probably belong somewhere more like fighting for a few wins in the European League, maybe, you know, so I probably would just have it in a way where you would have an expansion. And I think what I was trying to say earlier about the, the qualification thing, I didn't maybe, it wasn't that clear, was it was more from the EHS perspective, the fact that they just choose three teams from Germany or two teams from Germany, or then change that based on how they're feeling some seasons, you know, but when they changed it a few seasons ago in Germany mm-hmm. from three to two, wasn't it? And I think that that's that was the the angle I was coming at with the, the franchise aspect of the way it's set up in terms of quali- qualifying for it. Uh, they kind of choose well the best two teams from Germany, best two teams, and yeah, rather than having a, a wider qualification system where you could have a team from, let's say, Cyprus who might qualify for the uh, Champions League. <laughs> Very good, and maybe a hint for why, why we're talking about Cyprus there. But I, at the end of the day, I agree. Um, Sixteen team competition. The top ten are the first place teams from the top ten nations. The other six places are divided are, are allocated with a two-step qualification weekend thing. So you have qualification round one, where you have Brian Campion, Pfizer, Sligo, Handball Club, Face, and Thorsis Famagusta from Cyprus, uh, a team from England and a team from Malta. The best team goes through to the second weekend, where you have the the mid-range or the European League nations, and then you have four teams in, in each of them, uh, semifinals and finals. You get your six teams qualifying through that uh, very long. Well, not even long. It would take two weekends at the beginning of September. Then you have your 16 teams uh, to do that. And at the end of the day, I would love there to be qualification and uh, giving a chance for all the champions of Europe to have a a place in the Champions League somehow. But at the same time, it's even difficult for teams like uh, from Ireland to, to play in the lowest level of European club handball because it costs too much. That's another topic for another day. It was just really quickly before we before we leave this topic. I just one super quick question to both of you: like moving the Euro uh, World Championships to summer, yes or no? No, because Norway won't have the Christmas uh, <laughs> celebration exactly. every year. When for- <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, um, I actually changed my mind on um, the European and international national competitions where I really thought about before I thought about like stretching them out, but I think it, it's good. Let's maximize the national teams. Uh, I liked your point from earlier, Chris. Okay. Uh, <laughs> who would have thought this would be the biggest topic when Aaron Palmerson is moving to Alborg in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
peak Aaron Palmer in 30 years of age uh, after spells at Kiel, Vesprem and Barcelona is going to Alborg this summer uh, to join an increasingly impressive looking team. And this is a whole year before Mikkel Hansen joins. Is this move even bigger than Mikkel Hansen in terms of the pure handball quality that he will offer to the team? I think probably it actually is um, a, probably a bigger move with, as you said, Aaron being uh, 30. And when, when, uh, when, when Hansen moves, he'll be, what, would it be 34? Is that right? Yeah, to going, th- going on 35. Going on basically. 35, yes. So I think it probably is a bigger move, but I probably yeah. felt bigger when uh, Mikkel was, was announced because he's going coming back to Denmark. So I think that's uh, kind of has a lot of, of a, more of a story to it than Aaron Common. But in terms of handball quality, yeah, I think Aaron at, at this moment can offer or was probably will will bring a, bring a huge amount with them to it. And it's really exciting because I think it's look Aaron Parmesan being from a Nordic country as well. It kind of suits his style of play as well. It's going to be the Danish league is going to be absolutely on fire next season with all the players that Gog have signed and Alborg. It's going to be incredible. Alex, take it away. <laughs> I, I have. Just, I, I really think it's an interesting move for Aaron Palmerson because the teams you listed out that he's played for, Kiel, Veszprem, Barcelona. We know he's a star, but he's never had to be a star at club level because every team he's been with has been a team full of stars. So what, by him going to Albor we're unleashing kind of Iceland national team, Aaron Palmerson. And I think, I don't know, I have, I think a lot of the humble community appreciates the absolute talent that Aaron Palmerson has. But there's some sort of unfulfilled potential within his career where he's, um, I don't know, he's never been the main player on a team. Like the guy, he hasn't been there except for Iceland, which uh, is part of it. But for a club, he hasn't been there. So we're basically going to see Aaron Palmerson taking Alborg under his wing and being the guy and trying to see, can he be that, you know, top three player in the world level player that I think all of us believe that he can be, but we just haven't seen except for short spurts um, within the uh, the clubs he's been in. So I'm really excited to see what Aaron Patterson can be at the highest level. And he is joining a team that is improving for next season as well. I mean, they are getting in some very interesting players. Jesper Nielsen in on the line is a, is a good move there. Uh, Christian Bjornsson is joining as well. Uh, very good signing. And, you know, we're talking about a Champions League quarter-finalist all-board team. This isn't, you know, this isn't bottom-up. This is a team that's currently challenging for the final four uh, in the Champions League. So they're a very good team. They're getting a boost of players. And then they're just getting a superstar straight away. Um, I'm pretty excited about Albor next year. And <laughs> it, it kind of feeds back into that discussion we had about... Uh, you know, will Denmark now become uh, a one-team league? Well, Geo Gee have ideas about that as well. Uh, as Brian said, they're bringing in some nice players next season and will always be developing players. So that's another thing. I mean, some people believe that 
Alborg are maybe going about this the wrong way, maybe buying players that are a bit too old. Um, but Mikkel Hansen at 35, as we spoke about a couple of months ago, I mean, it's just a, it is an incredible signing, uh, not just for on-court activity, but also off-court uh, and the attention he'll bring. And uh, Handball Haven on Twitter asked us, given the recent transfer news, which one of these clubs wins the EHF Champions League title next? And there are the four clubs he's given. Alborg, Montpellier, Nantes, Kielce. Can you give us a, uh, give me a refresher of the, some of the transfers like, <laughs> before I answer this question? I <laughs> uh, can't do. So uh, coming in this coming summer for Kielce, we have Dylan Nahi, the winger from PSG. Uh, and then a couple of question marks. Um, Stefan Dodic from Metalurg, and then a couple of guys from uh, the Polish League. Uh, and then the following season, Doric Pelavan, Turkish players coming back from Minden. I mean, not a huge influx of new players there, but I guess that's based more on on the squad they have already. Oh well, I've, I've Montpellier here anyway. Uh, it's just Marco Panic basically, and I couldn't name anyone else after that. Carl, Val- you know, is someone from Carl uh, uh, Valin- Valinus? Carl uh, Valinius. Yeah. The line player who played very well for Argentina at the World Championship, Lucas Mascariello, he's coming in. But they're, they're losing Mel- Melvin Richardson. I mean, that's a, that's a huge blow for them. Uh, or he probably is going to Barca, right? And uh, Nantes are basically getting Pedro Portela, a uh, humble our favorite, but losing quite a, quite a few players, including Cyril Dumoulin, Olivier Nyakas, uh, Gerbindo, which was a... I think that did we talk about the Gerbindo transfer uh, on this podcast? No, we haven't. Because I think that was just an incredible moment because it basically came about from a Twitter conversation with Rasmus Poitsen, <laughs> where he tweeted that um, Gerbindo is one of the most um, underappreciated handball players in the world. And. Uh, Gerbindo actually replied to that saying, yeah, tell tell my bosses I'm looking for a new contract. So uh, tell them what, what you think. And a couple of weeks later, it was announced that uh, he was leaving Nantes and going to Varda. <laughs> yeah, I, remember, I remember that conversation because there was also the, the very funny Spanish account, uh, Rajadores de Balonmano. Uh, was getting involved with that uh, and Tom Branagon as well. On transfer news of who is not going to Vardar <laughs> next season, <laughs> Handball Woche, the German uh, magazine, published that Gauthier Mbombi from <laughs> DR Congo was joining after Handball or Hand News, the French website, posted it as an April Fool's Day joke. <laughs> so a printed publication. <laughs> the- <laughs> In Germany, actually wrote it as fact, which I just think is absolutely hilarious. Um, so, fair play to Hand News who managed to uh, make that joke, despite in the in the article itself saying it's a joke at the bottom. Managed to make it stick for over a week. But going back to the question, uh, I think Kielsa, um by far, um, I think the biggest favourites for a Champions League t- title. I've talked about Kielsa, but. Uh, a lot and how I really believe in the project they have. I think they have basically the money to keep bringing in good players. There's 
PSG are too dominant in France to allow Montpellier and Nantes to develop. And we can see that from the transfers where Montpellier and Nantes are, they're not getting blockbuster players. They're trying to develop players. Um, and Alborger, I just, I just, that's it's too much of a wild card to go with. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Uh, Brian, who would you say of those four teams would be the most likely to yeah. win the title next? I think yeah, you have to go with Kielsa. Kielsa, then Alborg, and then uh, I'd probably put Nantes and Montpellier last and pretty much agree with, with everything that Alex said there. I mean, uh, still in the mix to win this season is Alborg, so they could be the next. <laughs> 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 you never know. Um, just the, the last thing connected to uh, Palmerson and his move, uh, Juan Martin asked us on Instagram, which player on the market could cover Palmerson for Barca? Because Barca losing Palmerson, now they're going to lose Intrarios as well at the end of the season, as he uh, almost certainly will retire. Um, Sendrich is in there. Who else is going to be in that uh, playmaker role for Barca? I guess the uh, young Slovenian player, what's his name? Magic. Yeah, Domin Magic. Uh, he'll probably just be given more of a role, do you think? Or will they try to bring someone new in? I'm trying to, th- I've, I, I tried to think about this question, and there's actually a bit of a chasm of um left backs currently i i can name 10 right backs who i would say are just you know you could fit into that barca team you know these top right backs but what left backs are there but that are dominating? okay hmm. but i i would have thought parmason would be considered more of a center back in this position in terms of who they need to fill i mean he plays both right but i think you have sindrich as the center back um Maybe Makuch more of a centre back. The uh, at the left back they have um, uh, Langaro, good player, but not you know, not top Champions League. I think. Well, I, I was thinking about this question as well. It's kind of there's certain players that come into your head in playing in left backs. I was thinking it from a left back perspective as well, because um, he just kind of float around the place. But I, yeah, I've always imagined him more of a, as a as a left back, and in, in, I don't know why, but. You think of a player like Peter Nadic, like he's never going to play for Barcelona. I mean, I might eat my words, but I can't imagine Peter Nadic ever being transferred to Barcelona. He just doesn't suit really what Barcelona are as, as a team. Like, you know, he'd just be letting them fly at random, <laughs> in random parts of the game, like, you know, or someone like Vuku Borazan. I don't think he's the kind of player you'll ever see playing for Barcelona either. But you might see someone like Nikola Bilic maybe playing for Barcelona, do you know, when he, when he, when he recovers somehow. But I, I really. Oh, that's a good one. I never really. Uh, I couldn't really think of anyone else but him, to be honest, who could really fit into the Barcelona team. You know who would actually would have fit absolutely perfect? Andre Gomes. Andre Gomes. He just like doesn't he? Yeah, that's a good one too. Barcelona superstar. <laughs> well, no, he he bleeds empty Melsung in cash. <laughs> I don't uh, imagine he must be kicking himself now. He must, but he must be. Is he kicking himself now, Andre Gomes? Knowing now that Palmerson is going I'd say so. to yeah. Alborg, he's like, Absolutely. oh, uh, like, or however you say it in Portuguese. Um, <laughs> my goodness. Uh, yeah, we had a question uh, on Melsungen from Timo Tinemeyer, who asked which players slash coach are needed to turn MT Melsungen into a team. We haven't really spoken about Melsungen in this podcast as like the kind of the, one of the biggest 
disgraces in world handball uh, for just like having so much money and constantly buying good players and then nothing ever happens to them uh, Andre Gomez is going to Melsung in next season is that enough they you know what they would be buying their spot in a European handball super league Absolutely. if they could they, they would definitely be in a super league 100% they would be the Tottenham Hotspur or the Arsenal of the <laughs> super league so, as a player who would unlock Melsungen's potential, would be Luke Steins, Stas, uh, Sebastian Scuba, Stas Scuba. Get a real center player in, because that's actually an issue with. Um, we, we kind of talked about German handball in general in the way that they develop their players, and you have to be. If you're two meters tall, you'll get through the national teams. And you'll get um, to the top. If you're small, even though you might be a better playmaker if you're just a bit smaller, because you're more mobile, you just won't get through. And right now, Melsingen have Damagoj Pavlovich playing a centre-back, who is a left-back. He's a left-back. He's always been a left-back. And they have have Mikkelsen, who's a two-metre-tall Danish centre-back who probably grew up playing left-back. So they just have this whole team of left-back and right-backs and all they need is someone to tie that together. I would say, I I would think they've spent a lot of money um, and I think it's, when you look at their squad and I think if you're really honest with yourself, it's not that good of a team. (laughs) Like, if you, like, bear, bear with me here for a second, right? Remove Silvio Heinefetter and uh, Simic from goal. Okay, just they're, they're, they are two very good goalkeepers. Tobias Reitman is also a world class winger, and uh, Timo Kassin is also a, a, a world class winger. Everybody else in the team, would you call any of those players world class who are left? Would you call? Would you say that the squad is better than the top four in Germany? Because everyone said, why aren't they in Champions League positions? I don't think they have a better squad than the top five five Bundesliga teams. I think where they should be now is probably just below like probably fifth or sixth place and they're where they are in, in ninth but yeah I, I i fully agree that they um they had uh to be a reichman great right winger you know top of the top so they were like oh, okay we'll get timo costening to uh <laughs> get him into this team we really need him and then they did the same thing where julius kuhn is he's a good player he's a great left back um world class at a level so who do we get in? Andre Gomes. We really need Andre Gomes in here. Another left back to, to support Julius <laughs> Kuhn. So it's, it, it's just this blind spending that just hasn't worked for them. Maybe they should move to Sligo. Was I too harsh? Was no, I too no, harsh? No, no, no. You make, you make I'm it. No, <laughs> I don't think we can be too harsh until Melsungen at least make the Europa League. <laughs> yeah, no, like, I, th- I think I think they still have underperformed, but I think if they were playing their best handball, they'd probably only be still in fifth or sixth position anyway. You know, I don't think they'd be up pushing for it. I think people got a little bit too excited too soon about some of the stuff. And as you said, Alex, they had some wild transfers in, in kind of, they seem like there's any system to it. They just saw some ga- some names and kind of, oh, I have money, I want that, and threw some money at it. And they didn't really have a, a whole system behind the, tra- the transfers they were making. And as you said, missing a centre-back, Best players are wingers and goalkeepers. You know, there's, there's no one really there to drive the team. Maybe that's maybe their, their, their missing link. 
and the Fim Lemke, you know, who farted beside me at the at the EHF Cup finals uh, about four years ago. I had a, have a video of it as well. We might put that up. Uh, he smelled his own fart <laughs> and he reacted to it. One of the funniest, one of the funniest videos ever. I had it on my YouTube for a while. It was it was racking up the views. I was like, I better take this down. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, okay, now you, now you have to put it up. Uh, <laughs> the fifth yeah. of podcast. <laughs> to be, uh, to be <laughs> That's what he's back when he was playing for Magdeburg. Uh, um, Melsungen were in the European League this season. They just got knocked out in the uh, yeah. qualification rounds. The only German team that That's were right. in the league this season not to get to the EHF finals, which was decided on Tuesday night. Uh, three German teams in there. Fuchs of Berlin... SC Magdeburg, the hosts, Reinecke Leuven, and Orlin Wisla Płock, the only non-German team. Four group winners, four really good teams, probably deserve to be there, but I was a bit disappointed, I'm going to be honest, on Tuesday night, because Giogi lost to Płock, and Montpellier lost to Fuxa Berlin. Not because we don't like Fuxa Berlin, but just because there were going to be three German teams in the four, or in the HF finals. Yeah, it is. It's, it's always nice to have at least three nations <laughs> it does it otherwise especially when it's also in germany as well it just feels very uh the german ehf cup finals you know um but uh, yeah it was amazing to see how montpellier looked pretty good for lots of parts of that first half they came back and then in the second half just completely were steamrolled and just ne- couldn't recover which i was really surprised at with some of the characters they have on their squad as well but fair to uh, fair juice to to folks it because they've been a team that kind of have been all season long a little bit all over the place you know especially in the Bundesliga and uh, it was in 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 a, in a way it was good to see them <laughs> pulling it together for the second half to qualify because they uh, they really seemed like they really wanted it and Montpellier's season just crashed down in a week basically uh, they were on a huge roll ten game winning streak in. Uh, the Lidl Star League actually thinking that they might challenge for the title maybe a bit of a challenge surfacing um, they go and lose to PSG quite comfortably P- Montpellier were competed with PSG but never really threatened uh, and never really got closer than three goals within the game and then the next week they go and again it's looking like you know they'll make the final four they won the first game crash out to fix Berlin so very disappointed in Montpellier's week and I'm sure they're more disappointed in their own week would you have any f- favorites for the title then Chris yeah at the moment I would say and again it's me going back to backing <laughs> the boys SC Magdeburg <laughs> you know a stopped clock is right twice a day and maybe that'll happen with me and Magdeburg. Uh, they're really due a title. I mean, it's been a long time coming for them uh, since their their hey, glory days in the early 2000s. Looking really good at the moment. Absolutely tore Christian Stad apart. Uh, good team. Yeah, I, 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 on form, they should do it. But yeah, and I'll, even though there's three three German teams in there, that gives it a bit of a different feel. I mean, it makes it does make it interesting in its own way because I have experienced this before uh, in the old EHF Cup finals with three German teams, and it was surprisingly very good. That was in Magdeburg, and Magdeburg then lost the uh, semi final to Frischauf Guppingen, 
uh, at home, which was an absolute nightmare. First game of the tournament, the f- the whole stadium were just like, "Fuck this." <laughs> And then Frischov gupping and ended up uh, winning the whole thing, which was amazing. Uh, but I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna say Magdeburg, led by Omar Igni uh, Magnuson. Magnuson at right back, O'Sullivan in centre back, uh, Bezjak and Damgard in the left hand side. Just a really good group of lads. Yannick Green is making a push for the Olympics at this stage. He's ha- he's in great form uh, for Magdeburg these days. Really, uh, I like the luck of the team. I do hope that's the final, actually. I think I think Reinecker Leuven with Magdeburg in the final will be absolutely incredible because they're, they're also so close in the Bundesliga as well. I do think they're, they are, they have been the two best teams in the European League all season long. And I think that would be... And it was also Martin Schwab's last... One of his last big outings at the, at the helm of Reinecker Leuven. So I think they're going to be really up for it. And also, of course, it's going to be in the SAP arena also. And they did have a few fans with drums there the last few games. So I don't know if they're going to be letting a few more people in, maybe in for for those uh for that weekend possibly we'll see but that'd be great uh, would you give any chance at all to Potsk? they're there they're there yeah and i mean they're 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 a trick they're a tricky bunch of lads uh they're there for a reason as well i mean they absolutely snaked their way through that last 16 against sporting basically (laughs) sneaked their way past geogi as well in a very good second half performance you never know Mm. alex are you are you you gonna like a retract are you gonna give Potsk some I mean, to be fair, you did give some you did give them some credit in the last podcast. I, I have said that they have changed their ways, uh, and that we're seeing the fruit of this labor of the the, the changing of the ways. And Xavi Sabate is a fantastic coach, so um, I think it is down to him that they got there. I really think, <laughs> in many ways, I've been. Um, making fun of the old heads in Visaplotsk, but in their game against Geoge, it was the experienced heads that won them that game. Uh, you know, that European top level experience made sure that they, you know, got that victory against a very, very inexperienced Geoge team. just want to say, I love that in this one podcast, we've pronounced that team from Denmark's name three different ways. Alex is almost certainly correct, GOG, my GOG, and Brian's GOG. <laughs> so if, if anyone who wasn't sure about who we're talking about, it's all the same team. <laughs> okay, we're going to fire through all the other questions. One more topic I want to bring up uh, Sweden in the Women's World Championship qualifiers uh, that are happening uh, this week. They beat Ukraine by 14 goals away from home and then had to replace the entire team due to COVID. So a couple of players got COVID. They decided to take no risks. So they brought out the entire team. They Even the coaches as well brought in uh, one, a new coach, Jesper Usland, and 14 new players, uh, five of which playing in Denmark, eight in Sweden, one in Norway, seven of them debutants uh, to play the second leg against Ukraine with 14 goals to spare. At one point early in the second half, Ukraine were winning by eight goals. So all of a sudden it got very, very nervy for this uh, this young Swedish team who all of a sudden could have absolutely destroyed their uh, their hopes of uh, of, of the, the A team uh, making it through to the, uh, the World Championship. However, they did come back. Fair play to the youngsters from Sweden. Final score is 22-26. Yeah, so they actually won the second half, Sweden. 
and uh, safely through to Spain 2021. Uh, so fair play to them and uh, some pretty smart thinking, I think, uh, from the Swedish Handball Federation just to like take no chances. Everyone out, brand new set of players in and uh, and survive. Not sure they would have done that if it was like a two or three goal game, but with a 14 goal win to spare, uh, it was good going. Um, all right, so back into the mailbag and a bunch of other questions uh, from people. Uh, Neil Gruppetta from Malta, I believe, on Instagram, asked us for our EHF European Cup men predictions. First of all, I thought it was the European League, but no, he's talking about the third tier. And uh, here we have uh, Brian's new favorite team, Sabianco and Thorsis Famagusta from Cyprus beat Istad from Sweden by two goals in the first leg. Will they make it through, Brian? I don't know, but it's been, uh, it's, I mean, it's the hipster, as I said to you guys, uh, or when we were texting in the group, it's been the hipster story, I think, of the feel-good story of the whole season, you know. It's a club from Cyprus, and a lot of handball players in Ireland would be familiar with the Cyprus national team, as we've had a lot of encounters with them in our history as a national team in Ireland. We, we do know Cyprus, and they were kind of in the same tier of handball as Ireland for, for quite some time. Um a lot of people were saying, I was reading about it, that like the handball in Cyprus has been on a, a kind of a downward trend for the last while. So three years ago, a group of people got together, would put a concept together to put a club together that would have the best players from Cyprus and some of the best Greek players, put them together, create this kind of family atmosphere. They only have one other nationality in their team. It's a Brazilian guy called Bruno Oliveira Rodriguez, and he's only scored three goals this season. So he's a bit of a fringe player. So everyone really is Greek recipient there. And they've had some really good results in the European Cup season so far. I think beating Bayamara was probably the biggest one so far. If not, then last week's uh, win against uh, Istat, which I think was, uh, I think, surprised a lot of people. So they just keep surprising people. And it's, uh, yeah, there's hope for everyone out there, you know. Uh, so will they make it through, though? Um, what? It's the Neil asked for your predictions. Oh, it's, it's uh, very difficult. I think probably not. I think probably not. I think East has to probably would probably get the job done at home. Sadly, if it were up to me, though, I'd put them through. Uh, I think I agree with you there. Uh, and the other semi-final, AEK Athens, including a friend of the podcast, Thomas Bauer, in goal beat Gerenia Valenia by two goals in the first leg at home. Uh, so will we have... A Greek Cypriot final, perhaps, Alex, or will it be Gareni Valenia against Kim Anderson's? Gareni Valenia just beat Celia in the Slovenian league. So, and actually, Celia lost two games in a row for the first time um, in a very, very long time in the Slovenian league. So that maybe that says something about uh, Celia. But I think Gareni Valenia have something this year. Uh, to to clinch that title for him. John Smalden asked us to to mention the French League broadcasting games on YouTube because it's the first time in ages he's been able to follow his favorite team, Dunkirk, uh, in the French top division because the games are on YouTube sometimes. Is handball missing a trick, he asked. I would say no in one case because the EHF is showing games on EHF TV. In Bundesliga case, yes, they are missing a trick. I think if you're trying to grow the sport for in the smaller nations, absolutely, if you had Bundesliga games available. But I do like what the zone are doing uh, this season where they're basically, uh, everyone can use the handball content for whatever they want. They have no restrictions. And I think that's probably ultimately a good thing for everyone involved. So at least you can see a lot of clips on social media and they're not kind of hammering down that you can't use certain clips for things. They just 
It's like basically like a, a free-for-all. Everyone can take whatever you want. There's no policing. Makes their life easier and also spreads handball. Everyone gets to see the nice highlights. So I think it's obviously, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, there may be a chance for, let's say, the, the not the big games to be just transmitted free uh, for some of the uh, bigger leagues. Like what France is doing, uh, the Bundesliga should, could probably do that as well. Where, yeah, TV rights for the big games, that's fine. But there's lots of games out there that uh, could also be shown. Um, but I like what the French League is doing. Their highlights on the website are very good as well. Um, you can really get a good view on games. They have games on YouTube. It's a way of getting into the league. Handroll has asked, uh, can we talk about the greatest league in the world? The French Pro League, the second division. All I have to say about that is the winners from last season, Limoges, are doing very well in this season's top flight. So must be a good league. Uh, I had known nothing else about the French second division. Do you have one fact from the Pro League and that Saran, Saran, the team that are winning it currently, is the team that Kema Rodriguez joined two years ago. Um, and he believed in the project that Saran were building um two years ago as a 39 year old he joined the um second division team they obviously didn't fulfill his um dreams at the time because he retired and became a uh, assistant coach for the hungarian national team and left uh the south of france but saran are winning and they are about to go into the league. So maybe they are a Limange in the waiting because there's a bit of a project behind them. Very good. Katrina asked us on Instagram, our top scorer is overrated. Often they get the MVPs for lots of goals, but defense players forgotten because they do not score. I think we've spoken about that a lot uh, and particularly on the stats side of things as we try to give a more rounded view of the handball world and contributions. But in a word, our top scorer is overrated, Alex. No, no, I don't think they're overrated. I think top scorers are still generally the most important player. Agree there, Brian? Mm, I'd say slightly, if you're going to ask me for one word, maybe slightly, you know? I think even certain positions on the court maybe are less likely to get an MVP where left back, right back, centre back, you know? I'd say maybe just slightly overrated. Also on Instagram, football in handball asked, can Vipers, Breast or CSKA beat Jur? Who will be in the final? So we saw the uh, women's EHF Final Four draw made. It's going to be Vipers against CSKA, Breast against Jur. What do you guys reckon? I think uh, Breast can actually beat uh, Gure. And this is my hot take of the season that it's going to be Breast uh, to beat Gure to go to the final playing against CSKA. Winner of the, winner of the Champions League? I'll tell you that next time. <laughs> uh, I'm saying I, I want to believe in Bress. It, it, like, I want to believe that they can win, but you're just going to win. And then they're just going to win. Um, but I believe in Vipers to do something special because they've already done something special in that game against Rostov. But at the end of the day, you're if Jura are going to lose a game at the final four the semi-final I think is where you can catch them uh, and Brest are, are perfectly poised to do that so yes I think Brest I think any of the teams can beat them I'm not sure if any of them will to answer your 
<laughs> I, that was I, the I, question. Like Can they? I, I, I love the fence that you're setting on, Chris. It's, it must be cozy. <laughs> the question was, can Vipers, Breast, or CSK beat Jura? Yes, they can. I'm not sure if they will. Who'll be in the final? Oh, that is that that requires a definitive answer. I'm going to say Vipers against Jura. Vipers Jura for me as well. Moe Gadia. So we're on to the last two questions. Moe Gadia on Instagram asked us English speaking players and where they play. How do they get to where they play? So I guess he's talking about uh, players that come from native English-speaking countries. So USA, Canada, Great Britain, Ireland, uh, South Africa, Australia, uh, New Zealand. I think Moe's in Australia. Um, I think the highest highest level player we've had in the English-speaking world is Bevan Calvert, who we spoke to a couple of months ago on the podcast, playing a couple of games and scoring in the Champions League. Not... The first player from an English-speaking nation to play in the Champions League, though. I believe that goes to Ireland's very own Josh Grace, which we didn't speak about at the time. But our pal Josh Grace uh, did play with Alborg and was in the Champions League squad a couple of times. So he gets that honour. And good luck to Josh in his qualification for the top league in Denmark, as Skio will play um, probably IS Copenhagen to uh win uh that place in the league and that'd be cool to have a uh, irishman in the top division in denmark again um also there's been some good uh like in the 90s and 80s uh, american players playing at uh at various leagues around europe uh drew donlan is playing for adamar leon towards the top of the Asseball league and also played in the european league so yeah there's uh there's a few of them how they get there um most of them uh, born in the countries they play in or <laughs> and uh, some of them uh, some of them through pure hard work like uh, or talent like Drew Donlan had an opportunity with the world class academy program with the Air Force that let him go there Bevan Calvert was a crazy bastard and moved to Germany uh, so yeah I, I worked but, but his I way up the, the national team competitions uh, for both Bevan and uh, Drew were what opened up a professional world for him if you're the best player in the lowest ranked uh national team tournament like chris weren't you a uh, top scorer in a very low ranked <laughs> national team tournament before and did you not get a semi-professional contract out of it <laughs> i was just, first of all i was just gonna say I, I don't know why i'm telling you this uh moe because we spoke to both drew and bevan this season on the podcast so go back and listen to them uh and tell their stories themselves uh, yes, I was in the All-Star team uh, for the EHF IHF Challenge Trophy 2011. And um, actually, no, I'd already moved to Germany at that stage. So, no, but that, playing for Dublin International in the EHF Challenge Cup got me that. Uh, that's almost 10 years ago, lads. Can you believe that? That's nuts. 10 years ago since that tournament in Limerick uh, this September when the three of us Right there, battling for Ireland. Uh, one more question. Or do you have anything to add on the English-speaking thing or my uh, All-Star Team nomination, Brian? No, no. Nothing. All good. <laughs> <laughs> Johan Hansen was also on that All-Star Team, now of Denmark uh, World Championship gold fame. Uh, scored more goals than him as well. 
you have mentioned this at least three times before on this podcast. No, not on the podcast. No, no. At least three <laughs> times before on this podcast that you have mentioned that you outscored uh, Jan Hansen in a <laughs> tournament. <laughs> Uh, Annette Utby asked, when will we have Emil Nielsen as a guest on the podcast? Well, Annette, I've actually just asked HPC Nantes if we can get him before the quarterfinals of the HF Champions League. So he could be our very next guest on the podcast. The big cheese. Should we explain that a little bit? Maybe? I think people are getting confused about that a bit. Yeah, we, ha- we have to normalize this nickname now because... The big cheese is a complimentary term, right? And I think people uh, don't quite know that in the English language. Yes, so big big cheese would be, you know, the guy who owns the room is the big cheese. Exactly. Uh, it's just a very important and uh, impressive person. And yeah. we turned it into Le Gros Fromage because he's playing in France. <laughs> That's all there is to it. <laughs> Uh, so we'll speak to uh, hopefully we'll speak to Emil uh, now that we've said it you know if he's not there it's his fault or Nantes fault so <laughs> let's find out <laughs> very soon but um, I think we can leave this bumper episode there uh, thank you all of you for your questions and topics uh, we'll have to do that again sometime if you have any anything you want to talk uh, to us about any guest suggestions like Aneta gave one there that was a nice one as long as it's not just get me on the podcast or get my friend on the podcast uh, if you have player suggestions or, or handball related suggestions please send it our way uh, handballhour at gmail.com uh, we'll do that again sometime soon and thank you all for taking part in this episode thank you Alex and Brian as well thank you thank you very much we'll see you next time bye bye mm-hmm.